Genesis 24. Genesis 24. It was an ordinary Sunday morning. And the church had gathered for worship as normal. But on this particular Sunday, this particular Lord's Day, the faith of the congregation was to be seriously tested. No, not, not regarding their belief in God, not regarding their desire to grow in Him. On this particular Lord's Day, there was to be a serious test of the congregation's faith in their pastor. This pastor loved the people, and he loved to preach the word to the people. He loved to show them the richness of God's word, and so he tried not to skim over passages. And because of this, he was known at times to preach full-length sermons, sometimes on just two or three verses of Scripture. In fact, such was the case in this particular congregation just a few weeks earlier that the pastor had preached a full sermon on two verses of Scripture. So you can imagine the surprise and the anguish that the congregation felt when on this particular Sunday he stood up to preach and said, please take your Bibles now and turn with me to Genesis chapter 24. You see, Genesis 24 has 67 verses in it. And the congregation was certain that the pastor would need a four-part series to get through it all. Nevertheless, for the love of the people, the pastor was determined to encourage their faith by preaching the entire chapter in one sermon. <laughs> was he successful? We don't know, for the end of the story has yet to be written. But we should know around noon today. If you take a quick glance through Genesis chapter 24, you'll see that it is a somewhat familiar account to many of us. It is the story of the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is Abraham's son. Rebekah is the wife that had been found for him and brought to him throughout this chapter. But there is so much more to Genesis 24 than just a story of a marriage. So while it is true that Isaac is the son of promise, and it is true that the fulfillment of God's that, that he is the fulfillment of God's specific promise to give a son to Abraham. And this is the beginning of so much more promise and fulfillment that we see throughout the story of Israel. The actual marriage of Isaac and Rebekah takes up a very small portion of this passage. And I am all for looking at Genesis 24 and gathering great principles for a healthy and godly marriage, but there is much more to this chapter than just that. How God brought it all about and what it reveals about the people of God who walk with God, that is more of the focus of this passage. The last recorded words of Abraham are found in this chapter, and they are words of faith and confidence in the God who called him, the God who had sanctified him, and who had protected him and provided for him, the God who has kept his promise every step of the way to him. Genesis 24 is a transitional chapter, moving us from one generation to the next, 
from Abraham to Isaac. Indeed, the chapter begins with us looking at Abraham, and it ends with us looking at Isaac. But even above that, at the heart of this chapter, is a portrait of the motivating, guiding, providing, preserving, and comforting providence of a sovereign and good God, and how that providence informs the lives of His chosen people. That is what we're looking at this morning. And in this account, once again, God's plan for the nations seems to be hanging in the balance. It seems to be threatened once again because the promised son has yet to be married. Isaac likely is about 40 years old right now. He's not yet married. Well, in order for the generations to carry on, he's got to have a wife. And so we see yet another threat to God's plan. But what man sees as a threatening dilemma, we find once again, is no worry for God. And if people, if God's people would learn this lesson and simply trust and follow and obey and faithfully do what they know to do now, then they will find that God carries on His plan in exactly the way He means to. Indeed, we'll find out just how settling and stabilizing and comforting the everyday providence of God is as we consider the story of Genesis 24. So if you would look at the text with me and follow along as I read, I know the question that's on your mind, is he going to read the entire chapter? No, and you'll see why in a few moments. But if you'll follow along as I begin reading. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, which was a, a customary way of make, taking an oath like that in that time. Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. 
Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. And then from verses 34 down to verse 48, he recounts the whole story again. He tells the whole story in the hearing, so we don't need to read that. It's almost an exact likeness with a couple extra little details there, but he gives a summary story there. And then verse 9, when he finishes his story, he says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. 
And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahairoi and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We're going to approach this unusually long chapter in a unique way today. The first thing I want us to do is consider the people that we meet in the story. And then I want us to see the providence of God that is highlighted throughout the story. And then from that, I want us to learn some particular principles that are demonstrated by God's people in the story. And then finally, I want us to catch the point. The big idea, the lesson that we learn about God's providence and how it helps us to faithfully live and to live godly right here today. Let's begin by looking at the people of this story, the characters that we meet throughout the chapter. We begin with Abraham. Abraham only factors into the story in the first nine verses, but we know from chapter 12 until now, he's been the central character of the story. The chapter here opens up with this. Now, Abraham was old well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. To call Abraham old to us is a bit of an understatement. He's around 140 years old by this point. Now, interestingly enough, he's going to learn, we learn in the next chapter, he's going to live another 35 years after this. But he's an old man now, and the Lord has blessed him in all things, and that certainly was the case. By this point, Abraham was more than sufficiently wealthy. He was respected in the land. His covenant son Isaac had been born. He had been a blessing to the nations. He had now, in the last chapter, purchased the first piece of the promised land as an inheritance for his descendants. God was 
one step by one step, fulfilling his promises to Abraham. And Abraham had now walked with God for some 65 years, and he had learned well the unfailing goodness of God. And yet, in all of this, we're meant to sense that something isn't quite right. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 2. Right after God had created everything, and created it perfectly, and He created man and put him in the garden to work it, and He says that you know, every, after everything was created, He declared it very good. And then He very quickly turns around and says, it is not good. There's something not good in this creation. And it's that the man should be alone. There was something missing. In the same way, right here, we get the same sense. Everything in Abraham's life has been great. God has, has done so many amazing things, and it is all good, but something's missing. Isaac has yet to be married. This is the dilemma that the chapter addresses. This dilemma is the stage on which God's wonderful providence is now put under the spotlight. Now look at what else we see about Abraham in this chapter. Verses 2 through 4, we see Abraham taking responsibility to find a wife for Isaac. He's not manipulating. He's not trying to preempt God's movement. He has not lost his trust in God's ability to keep his promise as he had in times past. Now he is simply using his God-given wisdom to make the next reasonable decision to move within the plan of God. And all the while, he is trusting and he is confident that God will use that to accomplish his good purpose. Notice what else we see of Abraham. Look at verses 3 and 4, and you'll see that Abraham is devoted to his distinctiveness within the land. What we're doing is we're, we're observing these characters and laying out some principles that we're going to pick up later from these observations. Abraham was devoted to the distinctiveness of himself and his family in the midst of the other nations in the land. He refuses to consider the possibility that Isaac would find a wife among those people. Abraham knew these people were already corrupted. These people were already condemned by God. This was not the way God's plan would be carried on. And so he makes arrangements to find a wife elsewhere. But yet notice also in verses 5 through 7 that he's also devoted to the land that God had promised. The servant asks the question, well, what happens if, if I don't find somebody there? Is Isaac now supposed to move back to the land you came from? so he can move on with his life. And Abraham's answer was, absolutely not. Whatever you do, don't take him back there. God promised this land to the family. We're staying here. His mother is buried in the land that we just purchased. We're staying put. I believe God will fulfill this promise. Abraham knew that God would provide a wife for Isaac somehow. Even if he didn't do it the way Abraham thought, he knew it would happen. And it would happen without him having to compromise his promise or plan. So, in his devotion to his distinctiveness to the land, Abraham remains steadfastly, immovably devoted to the promise of God above everything else. 
There was no need to compromise here because the God who made the promise is the God who will fulfill it. And we see Abraham's confidence in verses 7 through 9. He says as much there. So that's Abraham. Next, we meet the servant. The servant of Abraham. He's introduced in verse 2 as the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had. That verse has led many to think, to conclude that this servant was a man named Eliezer of Damascus, whom we met back in chapter 15. I don't know that we can be sure about that. We're not told that. He's an unnamed servant. But it's an interesting thought if you know who Eliezer is. In chapter 15, we find out that Eliezer was the one who stood to be the inheritor of everything that Abraham had if he did not have a son. Now, if that's the case, then the character of this servant is even more magnificent because here's a man who stood to gain everything, and yet when the son was born, that inheritance went to someone else, and Eliezer is still here serving Abraham, and not just Abraham, but serving the heir. Again, we don't know that this was him, but it might seem to fit. This unnamed servant features prominently into the rest of the chapter from verses 9 till the end. What we see of him is that he is unwavering in his submission and his devotion to Abraham and to the assignment that he had been given. In verse 10, we see him lead a significant team of camels and likely some servants with him with a striking supply of costly gifts. And he travels some 400 to 500 miles away. That's like walking from here to D.C. In verses 11 through 14, we see this servant pray to God for guidance and for wisdom and discernment. And notice how he prays. He doesn't pray for a miracle. He just prays for God to direct the normal circumstances and even the decisions that he had made in order to accomplish His perfect will through the normal course of human events. Moving on to verses 26 to 27, we see this servant offer joyful worship to God when he unreservedly acknowledges God's character and work to answer his prayer in this particular situation. In verses 32 and 33, we move on and see this servant who patiently follows the leading of God through the normal flow of circumstances. He's committed to his mission first, but he is not forcing the matter. He's going along with the customs of the family. He is getting to know people. He's recounting what God has done. He's not just demanding obedience. He's not manipulating. He's not taking matters into his own hands. And then in verses 34 through 48, he recounts the whole story again. And he highlights the wonder of God's leadership to this point. And it proves that God is the one who is behind the proposal that he is making. And yet all the while, in verse 49, he is still submitting to the family and to the normal customs of marriage. He trusts that if this is of the Lord, God is going to make it happen. And if it isn't, God is going to direct him in another way. And then in verses 52 through 54, 
We see his gracious generosity, not just to Rebekah, but also to the family. In verse 56, we see his discernment, particularly when the, the request to stall the return to the land uh, seems to maybe threaten the plan of what's going on, threaten the movement of God. It's not so much that they asked for them to stay 10 more days. It's the fact that Laban asked the question. And we find out later in the story, in, further, in later chapters, that Laban was a conniving person. So there was a bit of a danger there. But the servant discerns that, and he avoids the potential pitfall. And then in verses 61 through 66, we see that this servant was faithful to the end seeing the task through one step at a time and bringing Rebekah back to the land, presenting her to Isaac according to the plan and promise of God. That's the servant. The third character we meet in the story is Rebekah. She comes into the story in verse 15. When we meet her, what is she doing? She's serving her family. She's gone out to the spring to draw the water. That was the normal custom. She was simply being faithful in the everyday, normal task and course of life. But we also see that she was a pure girl. In verse 16, she's called a maiden. In verse 43, in the recounting of the story, she's called a virgin. I suppose she would have been considerably younger than Isaac, but that was not unusual at the time. The words that are used to describe her refer to a young woman of normal marrying age, but it also implies that she is physically and morally pure. She is a young woman of character. And she puts this character on display in verses 17 through 20 when she graciously and generously and humbly serves Abraham's servant in a way that went beyond, went, went over and above the normal expectation. It was normal to draw water for a traveler and to let him have a drink. It was not expected to water the animals. You say, what's the big deal? So what if she gave some water to a few camels? Well, let's think about how this would have worked. How many camels were there? Ten. Do you know how much water one camel can take in? I've heard it's 25 gallons. Do the math. 250 gallons of water from the spring. What I've gathered is that this spring is something that you would walk down the steps into to get to the water source, to fill your jug, which likely held about three gallons of water, and then brought it out. This young woman made something like 75 to 85 trips down into the well to get to the spring to water these camels until they were satisfied. And she did it all the while while the servant was just sitting there watching her do it. Talk about grace. Talk about humility. Talk about patience. That's what's going on here. And then... What's beyond that in verses 25 and, and then verse 28, we see that she is hospitable in welcoming this servant into their home. In verses 57 and 58, we see furthermore that she was willing to follow the Lord's leading 
at a moment's notice, this is an overnight turnaround, and she's willing to follow the Lord's leading to a land and to a family and to a future she did not know. Kind of like Abraham did back in chapter 12. And then in verses 59 through 61, her family pronounces on her a blessing that curiously reflects the blessing God gave to Abraham about Isaac back in chapter 22. Then in verse 67, we see what became of this woman. As she came to the land, she was given as a precious gift from God to Isaac, and Isaac loved her. And she comforted him. And then we also see that, that, that move of taking her into Sarah's tent is a signal to us. This woman has been set apart by God to become the new matriarch of Israel. She is the new Sarah. And by doing that, we see that the, the promise God had made was now secured in Isaac and Rebekah and their offspring, as opposed to the other sons that Abraham is later going to have, we read about in chapter 25. That's Rebekah. Then the next character we meet, or the characters that we meet in this story, are Laban and his family. They go together, but Laban's the focal point here. He's Rebekah's brother, and it's implied that he's the one who is leading the home. We see that in verses 29 and 31. His father, Bethuel, who's Abraham's brother, likely is incapacitated. He's still alive, we find out in verse 50. But Laban and, and his mother, you see in verse 55, they're the ones calling the shots at this point. Laban is also hospitable when the traveler comes to his house. We see that in verses 29 through 31. But it appears that Laban's hospitality might be resting in the extravagant gifts that he observes when the stranger comes into town. And that certainly would fit with his character. Because in Genesis 29 through 31, in his dealings with Jacob later, we find out that Laban is a very materialistic and deceptive person in his character. He's always looking for a way to turn a situation to his own profit. And that's what makes his suggestion later in the story a little bit suspect. But what we need to see about him here in this passage is that in verses 50 and 51, even Laban couldn't deny what was happening was from the Lord. So it doesn't matter if I say something good or bad to you. God's clearly leading, so let the girl go. God was sovereign even over that. The final character we meet in the story is Isaac. But we don't meet him until the end of the story, in verses 62 through the end. Isaac was dwelling in the southern wilderness area at the time of Israel. Uh, we're not exactly sure why. But when Rebekah arrives, God worked it out that Isaac would be out in the field meditating. I suspect he's thinking about his future and hoping that this servant comes back with some good news. And by God's sovereign providence, even in the little details of life, Isaac was the first one to see Rebekah when she arrived. And it appears that they sort of caught each other at the same time. You can almost hear the sappy music playing in the background, right? And now the wind, the breeze is blowing and all this, all this cool warm and fuzzies are happening now as the couple finally meets. 
And Isaac was comforted after the death of his mother, and God's plan was now once again clearly moving forward. And so in, in this, Isaac, and, and I expect Abraham, his father, as well as the servant and Rebekah, are all comforted and strengthened in their faith as they once again see that it was God at work here, as one songwriter put it, providentially ruling all things to conform to the end he designed. He mysteriously governs and brings all these things into place. And that nothing, not even what amounted to a thousand mile journey or the watering of ten camels, nothing could stand in the way of God fulfilling His promise. So those are the people. And that brings us now to consider the second point that I want us to see in this chapter that stands above everything else, and that is the providence. The providence of God that is at work and on display in the story. Here is where we see, as always, that God is the main character of the story. And that He is the one making everything happen. And every detail is under His control. The providence of God has been active over every step leading up to the story, throughout the story, and then following the story. Now, I think it would be helpful if we're going to talk about the providence of God to begin with a definition of what providence is. Providence, as I was reminded recently, is not just the capital of Rhode Island. It is a theological term. It is one of the most broad theological terms, a general theological term. But it is one of the most important doctrines, and it has specific implications for us. Now, there are several solid historical definitions of providence that we could look at. But there are a couple modern theologians who have summarized it all this way, saying that divine providence is God's preserving His creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to His appointed end for them. In other words, God's providence is not about miraculous signs or miraculous actions. God's providence is about His constant, comprehensive, Sovereign direction of every detail in creation and life to work out His divine plan perfectly and completely. Every detail, every moment, every place. Which means there can never be a moment, there can never be a person there can never be a circumstance or any detail that is not directly under the governing providence of God. Now that means then that as we look at history and as we look at this passage, as we look at our own lives, there is a natural, a normal pattern to God's providence. When we think of providence, we tend to think that it, it means... Uh, God's leadership in life that applies only to deliverance from a trial. Right? Oh, God was providential to deliver me from that hardship. 
or an empowerment in a difficult situation. And all that's true, but that's not the only part that God plays in His providence. God's providence is at work often in creating the dilemma. God's providence is often at work in leading His people into the dilemma. God's providence sometimes is even at work in making the dilemma worse before He makes it better. We see that many times throughout Scripture. If you want to see that, look at the book of Esther and see how once God starts moving to deliver the people of Israel, it actually gets worse before it gets better. Look at the people of Israel when they were being delivered from slavery in Egypt. When the announcement of the Lord came, things got worse for Israel before they got better. God's providence made that happen. And all the while, God's providence is active in, pers- per- in preserving the people in the dilemma and working out every detail of the dilemma to its designed solution. And ultimately, that means God accomplishes something by His providence that is bigger and grander than just that situation. And He's up to something bigger than we can see at any given moment. So, what does this look like in the passage before us today? I want us to observe the demonstration of God's providence throughout this passage. And since we're talking about long passages, I might as well give you a long list too. I've got 20 ways at least that I can see God's providence highlighted in this passage. First of all, or in and around this passage, we'll say. First of all, God's providence is seen in the promise He makes to Abraham, beginning back in chapter 12, and how He has repeated it, and how He has progressively fulfilled it to this point. He has made magnificent promises to Abraham. He is fulfilling magnificent promises to Abraham, and this is just the beginning. Next, we see God's providence in Abraham's faith and growth and maturity. In verse 1, He's old, he's advanced, God has blessed him in so many ways. He has become a mature follower of God all along. The next way we see is in Abraham's dilemma in verses 2 through 6. God is the one who created the problem that needed to be solved. We next see God's providence at work in Abraham's assurance in verses 7 through 9. God is the one who created the faith in Abraham. God is the one who enabled him to rest comfortably and confidently that he would fulfill every part of his promise. In verses 9 through 14, we see God's providence displayed in the servant's faith. God directing his faith and the trust of the servant as he sets out on the journey, as he prays for guidance. And the prayer of the servant reflects his trust in God's providence to be at work. We also see God's providence in the arrival of Rebekah in verse 15 at just the right moment. It turns out God's providence was at work before the prayer happened. It turns out that God has the solution in mind before the dilemma begins. It turns out that before we even think to pray about something, God is already at work to accomplish His plan in it. We see God's providence at work in Rebekah's purity and character, that He had preserved her in verses 16 through 19, and prepared this young woman for the providential call he was placing on her life. We see God's providence at work in Rebecca's service, verses 19 and 20, 
She didn't know who this servant was. She didn't know what he was watching for. All she did was serve. And God used that to move the story on to its next point. We see the providence of God at work in the servant's attention and discernment in verse 21. He doesn't know who this woman is yet. And yet he's already starting to think through what's going on. Could this be? Is this God? Actually, God can actually do it this way. We see God's providence in the servant's answer to prayer, verses 22 through 25. Here's where the man finds out. We know in verse 15 who Rebecca is, but he doesn't find out till verse 24. Here's where he finds out, and he sees that God is the one who had quickly and decisively answered his prayer. The providence of God is evident also in the servant's worship and praise in verses 26 and 27. And then down again in verse 52, when he acknowledges God's providence in ordering his steps and accomplishing the plan. It was God who did that. The servant couldn't have done that. We see the Lord's providence active in Rebekah's report to her family in verse 28. We see it also in Laban's response in verses 29 through 33. And then again in verse 50 and 51, even when the motives might not have been pure, God was still leading to allow this family to let her go. We see it also in Rebecca's honor in verses 53 and 60. God had already begun to exalt Rebecca, knowing what he is soon going to do with her. But even beyond that, he led the family to bless her in a way that paralleled the blessing God himself gave to Abraham and Isaac. They didn't know that. But it's interesting that God was sovereign even over the words of praise and blessing that they gave. God's providence is seen also in Rebekah's submission and her willingness to go. Who in their right mind in the course of one evening would be willing to make a journey like that and to go to a world they don't know and make such a life-changing decision? Ten days sounded kind of reasonable, didn't it? You dads are probably like, yeah, more like ten years. But here she is, by God's grace and direction, submitted and willing to go. God's providence is seen in, in her introduction to Isaac in verses 61 through 66. God brought Isaac to just the right spot to meet her just when she arrived. God's providence is seen also in the provision of a wife and descendants. He is the one carrying on the story. God's providence is seen in, in the gift that he gives of Rebekah to this man as a comfort in his time of grief, in his wandering as a son who now has lost this important relationship. And then finally, God's providence is seen once again in giving assurance to Abraham that his plan will succeed in every detail. And get this, all of these pictures of God's providence, and he doesn't speak a word in the entire chapter. Because sometimes God's providence seems to be in the shadows. And our call is not, is not simply to try to discern what is the word of God to me? What are the special signs? But just to apply God's wisdom to the situation in front of us. And God will lead. Now, whether you realize it or not, we have now looked over this story three times. We've read it. 
We've traced the people and we've traced the providence of God through the chapter. Now I want us to move ahead and consider the principles that we can observe and apply from this story. In the lives of the characters, the main characters at least, we can see several guiding principles and several character traits that mark their lives, and not just their lives, but mark the lives of all of those who live in the light of God's providence. This is where the story connects to us when we look at the principles that are demonstrated here. How do God's people live? How are we to live under the reality of His sovereign control or His providence in our lives? I can see at least four ways. If I sit down for another week or two, maybe I'd find some more. But we're going to look at these four big ideas. First, we see distinction from the world. Or we could say distinction within the world. Many preachers I, I, I heard who preached on this like to use the word separation, but I want to be careful there because the idea is not that we leave the world. Abraham lived in the land, but he maintained the distinctiveness that God had given him within the land. And we see it in his commitment to remaining in the land of promise and yet not allowing his family to intermarry with the condemned people of the land. Abraham realized, he understood that he had been called by God out of the paganism. He had been given a new identity as one who is set apart unto Yahweh alone. And he embraced that. And he made it a point in every decision of his life to maintain that distinctiveness from the world. You know, the Apostle Peter makes a very similar point to all Christians, even today, when he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. That's the identity we are to embrace. I'm going to recommend a resource tonight in the members meeting that deals with identity. And it boils down to this. Of all the options out there in the world, what is our identity? It is first and foremost this. We are God's people. Once we had not obtained mercy, now we have received mercy. And therefore, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In other words, you belong to God. Now live like you belong to God and maintain that distinctive godliness in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you live. Understanding God's providential call and his providential purpose and leadership in our lives enables us to live distinctively in the world as God's people. We can also, as a second note, observe this distinctiveness modeled in the purity and the character of Rebecca as well. Distinctiveness, distinction from the world, that's the first principle we see. The second principle we see 
is progression toward the promise of God. Progression toward the promise of God. You say, what do you mean? We see this in Abraham's action, even his initiative to move toward the next step in God's plan that he believed was right, finding a wife for Isaac. I'm not aware, we're not told that God specifically told him to do this. But Abraham believed it was the next right thing. And so he moved that way, prayerfully and trusting that God would lead through it. And that's what we need to understand, that the truth of God's providence is not meant to lead us to be passive in our Christian lives. The let go and let God mentality is not always a good thing. Instead, the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, as he considered the promise of God in his life and the call of God on his life, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Wait a minute. God is sovereign over that. He has already made it your own. Right. And so with confidence, I press on. In confidence, I pursue. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is an upward call. There is a prize that has been promised to all who are in Christ Jesus. And our task then is not to just sit back and wait. Our task is to get up and pursue. And that happens in the daily, normal moments and decisions of our lives. And that brings us to a third principle that we see here. And that is dependence on God's leadership. Dependence on God's leadership in the normal, everyday circumstances of life. We see this in the servant's prayer. We see it in his patience as he receives the answer to his prayer at the well, and yet still goes along through the necessary steps. He was urgent, but he wasn't rushed or manipulative. And in his dependence on God's leadership in normal everyday circumstances, the servant modeled the principle that James lays out in James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, then go to a seminar. Pull yourself up by your boot. No, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. The servant also exemplifies the kind of peace and restful dependence that Paul describes in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. When he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That dependence on God is what enables us to get up and move ahead with confidence, knowing that as we act prayerfully, God will lead sovereignly. 
And then a fourth principle that we see on display here is simply this. Service as God's faithful steward right here and right now. Service as God's faithful steward here and now. Whether it was Abraham or the servant or Rebecca or Isaac, they were all simply doing the task that was before them at the moment. Abraham was looking for a, for a wife for a son. The servant was out there doing what Abraham had told him to do. Rebecca was just going to the spring to get water. Isaac was just prayerfully meditating in the field. Wherever it was, whatever they were doing, it was what was in front of them at the moment. And while they were looking to God, they were present in the moment. And God used that to direct, to guide, and to accomplish His perfect will. It wasn't the task of these people to make themselves great or to accomplish their own will or to, or to answer all the questions or to just sit back passively and wait. No, they were faithful servants in the mundane tasks that were right before them each moment. And God used that to accomplish His spectacular will. That is how God works in most of our lives. Moms, God's will for your life is not on hold until your kids are out of the house. God's direction of your life is right here, right now. Men, God's direction in your life is not on hold until your bank account gets a little more padded or until circumstances get just a little bit better or until things work out just so. God's at work providentially in your life through your faithful action right here, right now, in whatever it is that confronts you in this moment. So be faithful. Be faithful stewards. As Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 4, that it is required of stewards that they be found what? Successful? No. Popular? No. Rich? No. Perfect? No. Faithful. Okay. We've looked at the people. We've looked at the providence We've considered the principles. Now let's bring it down to the point. The big point. The big idea of the text. The point of connection to our lives today. Here's what we learn. We learn in this story that God is governing and ordering and directing all things in this world and in our lives, each one of us, by His divine sovereign, and good providence. Every moment, every detail, every person. This ensures that every plan and every promise that He has in mind for you is good and it will be accomplished. Therefore, Christians, we do not need to fear. We do not need to panic. We do not need to manipulate the events of our lives or anyone else's life in order to accomplish what we think is right. Parents, you don't have to force your kids into a profession of faith just so they'll do it at a young age. Just faithfully show them Christ. 
faithfully teach them the Scripture and faithfully pray for them and let God do His work. We can apply that to so many, to every aspect of our lives. We can rest and we can take great confidence in our faithful and sovereign God at all times and in all things. We know that by principle. But what moment, what area, what situation in your life right now are you having a hard time yielding to the sovereignty of God? Think about it. Name it. And then name it to God in prayer. But at the same time, God's providence does not mean that we are to be passive. To be passive would be to misunderstand what providence is really all about. True faith, while it is fixed on God and rests in God alone, is an active faith. It roots itself in our God-given identity and calling, and it obeys what God has spoken and revealed to us in His Word. So, if all that's true, if all that's the point, then very practically, what does it mean for us on a daily basis, on a regular basis, as we look for God's providential leading in our lives? Here's what it looks like. Number one, embrace your distinctive God-given identity in this world. Okay, it starts there. Remain steadfast and immovable in the holiness to which you know God has called you and to your consecration to Him above everything else. And so here's my question. Do you know God? Have you been reconciled to God? Do you have peace with God through Jesus Christ? He is the only God who can give you that peace because He's the only God who's at work. And He gives you that peace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where it begins. And Christian, if you are in Christ, embrace that and maintain that devotion. Secondly, master the revelation God has given you in His Word. You hear that? Stop looking for miracles. I didn't say stop believing in miracles. Stop looking over the normal in anticipation of something Spectacular. Stop looking for extra biblical revelation. And for God's sake and for all that is holy, stop listening to secular counselors. Good grief. They don't have any hope for you. For your soul's sake, master the revelation that God has given you in His Word. Devote yourself to what God has revealed and made clear. And this will be enough. Thirdly, pray for wisdom and pray for discernment to live by what God has revealed. Fourthly, immerse yourself in the gifts of God's grace that He has already given you today. What are those gifts? He's given you Scripture. Read it and learn it. He's given you prayer. Devote yourself to it. He has given you the local church and the preaching of the word and the fellowship with the saints. Use it. Commit yourself to it. 
prioritize it. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If you are not regularly and often in communion with the saints, active in a church, and under the preaching of the Word of God, and reading the Scripture and praying, you are not a healthy Christian. And maybe this is where some of us need to get back to basics. Fifthly, not only make use of the gifts that God has given right here, right now, but get busy serving in a meaningful way right where you are. Stop waiting for things to get perfect. Stop waiting for, you to, for yourself to get to the next stage of life when you think things will be easier and less busy. They won't be. Get busy serving right here and right now. Those of you who serve, you know one of the best ways to grow spiritually is to pour your life into somebody else. And then finally, sort of in summary, do the next right thing. I don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now. I don't really even know what's going to happen tomorrow. I can make plans and I should. But ultimately, God's called me to do the next right thing. And then the next right thing. And then the next right thing. And God will steer you as you prayerfully do the next right thing, striving to be faithful. God will steer you exactly to where he means for you to be. And it will be good because this is a God worth trusting. This is a God worth trusting. He is in charge and he is in control. And in Christ, His providential favor rests on us. And so we believe in Him, we follow Him, we wait on Him, we rest in Him, and then we rise up and devote our lives to serving Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank